Hey, hold on a second. My dog's got something she's not supposed to have. Maki, what do you got there, hon? What is that? Oh, that's not for you. This is episode number 27 of the Let's Talk Retouching podcast. Follow along when we talk with industry leaders and professional retouchers about all things post-production and retouching. Today's episode with the man, the legend, if you don't know him, I don't know where you've been, the Photoshop guy, Scott Kelby himself. As always, the show is brought to you by our retouching studio, BoutiqueRetouching.com and LearnProsProduction.com. I also want to mention Photoshop World, the conference is going to take place later in August this year. And in this episode, you will get more information. You can still register. And now let's welcome our guest, Scott Kelby himself. <laughs> thanks, thanks, happy to be here. Uh, welcome on the show. We had a brief discussion before we actually started this podcast. So, and I want to get the people up to what you have done in the past. And just quickly mention, you have written tons of books on Photoshop in the past. You've been creating and hosting the Photoshop world, have been doing the National Association of Photoshop Professionals, right? And all sorts of things. So if people are into Photoshop and they have not heard your name, I wonder what they have been doing in the past. <laughs> So it all started years ago, and I want to take people back to how you got into working creatively. Uh, I know you've been in a band, so how did that start out for you? Uh, yeah, I was a musician first. I was started at a very early age, back in grade school, started playing drums. And by the time I got to high school, I had switched to playing drums and keyboards. And I was playing in a band, you know, on weekends and doing parties and stuff. And uh, at this time, I was uh, living with my older brother. He was getting into photography on his own, and he started really getting pretty good. And he came home one time and showed me some pictures he had taken in Europe, and he had, he had blown them up to eight by tens. And he showed me these. I'm like, wow, these are amazing. Where'd you get these? He's like, well, well, I took these. I'm like, dude, you took these shots? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, these are amazing. I, I was really uh, very, very impressed. And so... Uh, He bought a new camera and then he gave me his old camera. And this was back in the film days. It was a, a Minolta SRT 101 was the camera I got. I still have it to this day. And that kind of started off my photography was uh, following in my brother's footsteps. And then he and I would spend a lot of time traveling and, you know, shooting together. And at one point I opened up a small uh, portrait studio that I was on the side. It was not my main job. It's not how I made my living, but I was still playing in a band. I was also a financial consultant for Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner and Smith, which is a large brokerage here in America. I did that for a number of years and then, uh, and then I got sick of it. I did so much photography that I got burned out on it and I took all my gear my lights and my meters and the whole nine yards. I put it all up in storage And I didn't touch it for, I think, 12 to 14 years. Wow. I just stopped photography. And then back in uh, when digital first came out, I wasn't really liking the first compact cameras. But when the first digital DSLR came out and I actually held one in my hand, that was it. It completely reignited my passion for photography. And I've been doing it ever since. I came to Photoshop through a different route. So after I left the financial industry, I opened up a, a graphic design studio. And at that point... I was sending my images. I was doing a British newspaper. So a British couple here in America hired me to do a newspaper for British expatriates living in the States. 
and I would have to send out the photos to a stat camera. And I hated the way they looked. Because I was a photographer, I knew that the photos should have lots of contrast and they should be clean and crisp and stuff. And they weren't. Yeah. They, they, when you shot them with a stat camera, they had huge uh, halftone screens over the photos. And they were very bland and flat looking, no contrast. They were awful. And uh, I was complaining to a friend of mine about it. And I was doing page layout on a Macintosh computer. And he's like, dude, you need Photoshop. And I'm like, well, what does Photoshop do? He said, well, it's going to give you the kind of pictures that you want. You're going to process the photos and make them look great. You're not going to go to a stack camera. You're going to go to a service bureau and they're going to print you out a sheet of film negative and it's going to look great. It's going to look the way you wanted it to. And so the first time I did it, I scanned all the photos I edited them in Photoshop, and when that sheet of negatives came back, I could tell this is so much better than what I had before, so much better. The, the images were night and day, and that was it. From that point on, I never used a stat camera ever again. I did all my stuff scanning it and prepping it through Photoshop. And at that time, Photoshop was only used by graphic designers. Photographers weren't using Photoshop really at all. Mm -hmm. It was really uh, the tool of designers. So that's what I would do. I would, you know, and I got really good at all the scanning stuff, cleaning scans, removing halftone patterns that were already there and removing moray patterns and noise and all. And, you know, in the early days, you had to be you had to get really good at all the prepress stuff. And then I learned color prepress production, CMYK separations and all that. And uh, so that, that's oh, that that's a, a complete field of its own. Yeah, it is. Prepress is, is an art. It is something that you can get really good at and you can really make an incredible difference in how you separate images and how you prep them for separation. You know, it's just just like printing uh, today to a lab. You know, there are things that you can do to your own printer or to uh, printing in a lab that can make your images sing or can make them stink. It's up to you. Oh, yeah. The wonders of color management and color spaces. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's a difficult topic, especially for photographers. It kind of this management aspect was more involved in being a graphic designer and managing files from one to another medium, whereas photographers usually didn't have to deal with that. And nowadays, as you said, photographers can do more, but then they often lack a little bit in the education when it comes to these color management things and stuff so well yeah they don't make it easy you know you're you wind up all of a sudden using terms that photographers are not familiar with you know you go to the print dialog box of photoshop or lightroom and it's going to ask you all kinds of questions <laughs> that you're going to be like uh what yeah even more interesting when someone has uh, that knowledge accumulated over years of working in music then running basically a small design studio for advertising agencies and doing photography and everything relates more or less to another. And yeah. I find it astonishing even for audio and photography, how many concepts relate. Oh, it's true. Now there are definitely lots of overlap. So yeah, um, but what happened after you have done this design studio? So how did that progress into building this, let's call it this, Photoshop education empire? Well, it started with a, a friend of mine and and I starting a, a newspaper. It was a newspaper for Macintosh users. And it was just for people that lived in our hometown. Now, our hometown's very large. We have over about three million people in our greater Tampa Bay area, which is where I live. So it's, it's a large market. 
So we, we made a, a newspaper. It was called Mac Today, M-A-C for Macintosh users. And uh, it, it kind of took off. And from that, we wound up doing a seminar. Now, this is going back to 1993. So in October of 1993, we did what I think is the first large-scale Photoshop seminar. Now, uh, we only had, I think it's about 160 people show up. But that's really not too bad for 1993. No, it isn't. I mean, the Internet was around, but it was not easy to spread such a message as it is now. Uh, yeah. And we did not really use the, the Internet was so new then. Yeah. you what you went on. If you had anything, you went on America online. That was the, the thing here in the States. But um, uh, it wasn't the Internet as we know it today with a web browser and just loads of information. It wasn't like that at all. It was mostly like little, little private groups and stuff. But anyway, we didn't use that to uh, advertise because it really wasn't an advertising medium back then. We used our newspaper to advertise it and it worked pretty well. And so we got in the seminar business and that was 1993. And we still do about 20 seminars or so a year. And we uh, do them here in the United States. And sometimes other places. We've done them in Canada. We've done them in Germany. Uh, we've done them in the Netherlands. So, you know, that, that same seminar that I do here in the United States, we do other places as well. So that's kind of fun. That's how it started, was starting doing those seminars in the, in the early 90s. And back then, uh, it was Photoshop 2.5 was the version that was out when we started. Oh, not even three. Okay. No. So I remember doing the seminars for about a year and Adobe was one of the co-sponsors of our seminar and they would send a rep and he would do a little presentation during the day. And at one of the seminars, I remember sitting in the audience and he previewed layers like here's what's coming to Photoshop and all of our jaw, our minds were blown. I mean, back in that day when you wanted to do a simple drop shadow, it was all done in channels. Yeah, you would you would make a selection, save it as a you know a channel, and you'd basically knock out the object that you wanted, and then what was left was the shadow. You would have to go and uh, add a big feather, and then go to levels and darken that area, and it would look like a shadow. It worked. I can still do it to this day, but uh, I don't do it. I don't ever do it that way anymore. But you sure you certainly could, and that's what I did back in the day. We did our drop shadows with channels. Yeah, it's amazing. What we take for granted now is working non-destructively for the most part, which wasn't a thing back then. Oh, no, no. And so from that, doing that seminar, uh, we, we, start, we went to Adobe and proposed the idea of starting an association for Photoshop users, which uh, became the National Association of Photoshop Professionals. And we launched the magazine Photoshop User, which we still do to this very day, 10 issues a year for our members. Oh, by the way, you know, your listeners can go get a free copy of that magazine. If you go to kelbyone.com, and sign up for a free membership, you can get the latest issue of Photoshop User. And it's about 120-something pages. And it's all cool Photoshop stuff. And you can go get it uh, for free and download it. It's a digital magazine. So you can go get that at kelby1.com. Sign up for the free membership. You don't even need a credit card or anything. It's really free. <laughs> and there you go. Yeah. You can download uh, Photoshop User. Yeah, there we go. I will also put the uh, link in the show description. So, yeah, you have the free plan for the Kelby One website. Um, people can subscribe to that. Yeah. But what I now want to get into. So after you have done these seminars, you came up eventually with the idea of doing Photoshop Radio. Is that right? Yeah. Back when podcasting first, first started, it was brand new. We wanted to do something. We wanted another way to communicate 
And so it was kind of weird to do a radio show about Photoshop, but we we did it and it was fun and people liked it. It was we we would basically answer people's Photoshop questions. They would yeah. we'd talk about Photoshop news and stuff, and then people would would send us questions and they would say, you know, hey, um, um getting banding uh when I print out an image or something, because all the questions back then were about printing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we'd different go, times. Okay, go under the filter menu under noise and add four pixels of Gaussian monochromatic noise and it'll hide the the noise. You'll see it on screen, but when it prints, the noise will will blend in and it'll hide the banding and it works great. So it was kind of like that. I mean, it was just we would just chat about Photoshop. It was fun and it did really well. And back in the day, there were so few podcasts that, uh, yeah. you know, and that that turned into Photoshop user TV. So when we started, once we got into video and video became a thing, we wanted to get on it right away. So we jumped right on it. And for for years, we were one of the top 10 uh, highest ranked video podcasts on the Apple's iTunes store. So that was a lot of fun. And we made all kinds of connections and stuff through that. So that was, that was a lot of fun. We did Photoshop user uh, TV for many, many years. So it was, it was a blast and we really enjoyed it. Yeah, But I can't imagine like doing everything with audio and talking about such visual things is super hard. I mean, for this podcast, the concept is much easier. We talk about concepts and experiences that people have made, but talking about issues that people have, I I don't know. I, I was trying to look up some episodes, but I couldn't couldn't get to them anymore. But and it's been years. I I think that goes back to like two thousand five, six or something. Oh, I think it's further back okay. than that. Let's go see. I might I might be able to tell you. Hang on. And you might be right. Oh, July of 2005 is one of the ones that I have here. So yeah, 2005. So it was a while ago. <laughs> yes, ago, yeah. But yeah, so that's that's what we did. So that was that was a quite a long time ago. Yeah, and paved <laughs> the way for everyone else doing video education. And was there even not only in the Photoshop world, but on that scale that you have built up this online education thing that it basically wasn't a thing because uh, before you did it. I would assume. Yeah, we were were one of the pioneers of of all that, which made it fun. I mean, it was it's cool to do stuff that you know is new and exciting, and it was really exciting for us. So uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, great timing that we were able to do that. You know, luckily we had uh, a video department that was already making videos that we sold at my seminars, so I already had people on my staff that knew how to do video. So we were like, hey, we want to do this podcast. Now, back then, we didn't do it live. We would record the whole thing and then broadcast it. Today, we do. Uh, I do a show every Wednesday uh, at 4 p.m., and it's called The Grid, and it's a photography podcast. But it's video, It's and we've been doing that for almost seven years now. Every Wednesday, and we do it live. We take live questions and comments, and then we, you know, post the, the live version. You know, we archive it and post yeah. it, you know, as is. But yeah. But how did you end up? Like deciding, okay, teaching is more what I want to do and not designing. Oh, I, I think the success of our early seminars, uh, I started teaching uh, in 1993 and I really loved it. I, I love seeing people figure out stuff, you know, like I had to learn a lot of stuff the hard way. When I learned Photoshop, there was nothing out there. There weren't a bunch of websites. There weren't books. I mean, it was it was very, very little out there at all for photoshop and it was it was so new you know you're in version 2.5 there were there was like one book so once i i learned a lot of this stuff the hard way through friends and through you know experimenting and different stuff i think it's just my personality to want to share it with other people 
I think the teaching thing is something you're drawn to, you know, it kind of calls you and says, hey, you need to do this. And so I, I really enjoyed it. And I love the feedback. I love seeing like the light bulb come on when you're teaching people and they're like, oh, yeah, that's better. And I'm like, Ooh, you know, just yeah. kind of that makes me happy helping people through education. So I think it just kind of happened. It wasn't part of a plan. But once I started teaching those seminars, it just kind of took off from there. And so then I wound up writing a book. I wrote my first book 22 years ago, but that wasn't, it was a book on the Macintosh and it was only a co-author. And then in about two years after that, about 20 years ago, I wrote my first Photoshop book, which is called Photoshop Down and Dirty Tricks. And that book just took off. It went crazy and just sold a bazillion copies. And that's kind of how I got out there as a, you know, Photoshop guy was, was that book. But I can imagine like when there is nothing out there like this, for once thinking like, okay, if nobody is doing it, I'm going to do it, right? And then, yeah, people yeah. were obviously looking for all that stuff. Yeah, so that's that was a very lucky, it was a, it was great timing, you know. There was just so little out there at that point. And, and it wasn't like today uh, where a lot of this stuff is easy and accessible. You know, doing a book back then was really tough. In fact, the first book I did, that Photoshop Down and Dirty Tricks book, we self-published it and had a printer print it here. We sold it through Amazon and we never expected it to take off like it did, but it exploded. That book sold a ridiculous amount of copies and so much so that a big publishing company made me a really, really great deal to switch to letting them publish it. And we, we would update that book about once every 18 months and come out with a new version, Down and Dirty Tricks CS4, you know, Down yeah. and Dirty Tricks CS6, and, and on and on and on. And I did it for many, many years. Uh, and then as I went away from graphics and more into photography, I wasn't as interested in updating a special effects book. That book is kind of what launched everything for me. So that was... Uh, a lucky time and uh, lucky it, it sold as well as it did. But again, it, it wasn't because it was like the most amazing book. It was, you know, we're so used to step-by-step -step tutorials now mm -hmm. and nobody had a step-by-step -step tutorial book back there. Nobody, they would talk about the concepts and here's what you kind of need to do. But no one said, step one, go into the file menu, open the file. Step two, create a new layer. And, and I did, I, I did everything step-by-step, -step, showed all these special effects I'd learned over the years and stuff I'd learned in the magazine. I wrote a column in Photoshop User Magazine called Photoshop Down and Dirty Tricks. So I took a lot of that stuff and put it in the book. And man, that book just went crazy. So that was kind of very great lucky timing, I think, there. Yeah, amazing. But I want to touch on, you just mentioned you like about teaching when people have this aha or click moment and this light bulb going off in their head. Yeah. Thinking back, have you also had such a moment when you were working with Photoshop? Oh, I still have those moments to this day. You know, I, I'm always trying to learn new stuff and I'll watch videos and I sit in other instructors classes and stuff. And I rarely ever go to a class from another Photoshop instructor where I don't learn something new and have an aha moment. So uh, the thing about Photoshop is it's very different than Lightroom. Lightroom has the sliders it has, yeah. right? Lightroom's got this slider and that slider and this slider and that slider. So you're limited to what those sliders can do. Photoshop is wide open. Photoshop has no walls. It has no limits. If you can, if you can imagine that there's a way to do it, there's just so many tools, so many filters, so many ways around stuff. So it's a very, very different beast than Lightroom. So I learn less about Lightroom because Lightroom is very, you know, kind of a closed architecture. But Photoshop, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, you can paint things that are photorealistic and look like it was a photograph. Yeah. 
you can do 3D, you can do video, you can do, there's, there's no limits. It's really a limit of your imagination. It's not a limit of the program. Yeah, true. And then considering what you can do with very basic tools, like a brush and a mask and just a curve. Oh, yeah. There's so much you can do. There's so many brush tips and so many color combinations and options that you can do with brushes and sizing and scaling and jitter and just, oh my gosh, it's like just the brushes alone in Photoshop are so incredibly powerful. Oh, yeah, yeah it, it is a program with unlimited depth. You're never working in Photoshop and go, oh, Photoshop can't do this. You might go, I don't know how to do this, but you don't think it's because of Photoshop. That's true. You think it's, I just haven't learned that technique yet. That's true. That's an amazing, it's the greatest program ever made. And what I also find interesting with video editing, especially now, a lot of people switching from older applications to Premiere or switching from Premiere to DaVinci Resolve. But in the photo industry, you either use Photoshop or I don't know what you could use. I mean, there are apps aspiring to get there, but they are so yeah. far behind especially like talking about brushes or some some don't have the same layer features oh yeah yeah it's it's hard to beat it's not only hard to beat photoshop but it's hard to beat the community yeah. built around it there's so much support so much training so many i mean there's conferences there's magazines oh, yeah. there's you know there, there there's no other program that you can think of that has a conference that is even a seminar tour that's not put on by the company that makes it right yeah. yeah i mean it's it's photoshop has its own ecosystem and its own community worldwide community built around it and it's it's very hard for another program to come in even if a, a program could somehow be made with more features you know you, you're still be on an island you're by yourself yeah it's one thing to deliver pretty much the same or get to the same level and the other thing is another company would have make an effort to make people switch right and i as a professional i wouldn't have a reason to switch usually no that's it well look at like affinity affinity photo right so affinity has built a program that i would say is as close to photoshop as you can get i'm amazed that adobe hasn't sued them into the stone age because it's so much like photoshop it even uses the same names it's like healing yeah. brush you know layers opacity it has blend modes multiply screen you know it's all the same stuff But nothing against Affinity as far as a program goes, because it's actually quite good, but nobody uses it. Yeah. You only use it if you're mad at Adobe. Yeah. That's pretty much it. And that's it's not a good business plan. Our business plan is we'll get the people that are mad at Adobe. Well, there ain't that many of them. <laughs> that's true. You're never going to have, they're never going to be millions of people using Affinity Photo. Yeah. You'll get 10,000. You're not going to get 10 million. Yeah. And then thinking ahead is like what happens in like two years with that company, right? I mean, Adobe is going to be around and developing their applications. But for other companies, smaller companies, you can't be that sure. I mean, you can't switch and use it for now. But yeah, and you also can't be sure when Adobe does finally have enough and sue them to death. <laughs> then what? Yeah, which could happen. Oh, sure. I think Adobe at this point has only not sued them because they don't want to bring attention to them, right? If Adobe files a big lawsuit against some other company, you've got to figure Adobe's concerned. The fact that they haven't means they're not. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much it. If they were concerned, they'd do something about it. Coming back to sliders, I know you also use Lightroom, but what about Bridge? 
Bridge is awful. <laughs> Bridge is trash. There's a reason why Bridge is free because it's crap. It's awful. It's a terrible program. I can't believe that Adobe still makes it. It's ter- It's and people that that yeah. use it, but they even updated it just recently. Yeah, but it's still it's it's awful. It's no. It's not a lick better. It's a terrible program. It, it's it was never designed for photographers. It was designed for the Adobe Creative Suite. Yeah. So you would have a place to manage all of your different assets, your QuickTime movies and your PDFs and your InDesign documents and your Illustrator documents and your Photoshop documents and be able to move them back and forth between those applications. That it does fine. Outside of that, it's crap. Yeah, which now happens from application to application now. We can go from yeah. Premiere to Audition without sure. anything. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, the bridge is crap. It's just, I, and and people will ask me, isn't Lightroom pretty much like the bridge and camera raw? And I'm like, oh my gosh, you have no idea. There's a very, very big difference. So this is our commercial break. You guys know the show is brought to you by our retouching studio, boutiqueretouching.com and learnpostproduction.com. Now that Scott Kelby is our guest, I want to mention his company. Kelby One is hosting Photoshop World, the Photoshop conference, which is going to take place in August this year. It starts August 21st and will go until August 24th. And you still can get a ticket, participate in the conference, listen to the interesting talks, or get into a class with your favorite instructor. Now, if you like what we're doing here with the podcast, I also want to remind you, wherever you are listening to the podcast, please subscribe so you can get the future episodes right into your podcast player. I would really appreciate it. So that's it for today's commercials. Back to our conversation with Scott Kirby. Now, let's get a little bit more into the retouching thing. I want to ask, would you consider fantasy retouching? Well, I think fantasy retouching is anything that goes beyond what what normal retouching would be. I always think of normal retouching as being trying to make someone look as good in a photo as they did when you were standing in front of them. When you start to make them look abnormally thin or abnormally beautiful, or like you've seen on YouTube, where someone took a pizza and made it into oh, a that, person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that's fantasy <laughs> retouching. <laughs> you know, when when you go beyond what is the normal accepted, I, I think retouching is is actually very important and very necessary because when you take a photograph of someone, you know, people will say, Oh, well, your your flaws in a photo. I'm like, no, you don't. It's not that you just see your flaws. Your flaws are accentuated. Because normally you're standing there in front of someone and you're talking to them and it's they're a 3D object. They're moving. They're breathing. They have a smell. They have a personality. They have a vibe. They have all these things. When you take it and squash it down into a flat 2D plane of a photograph, these things that you would never notice about them in person, they're not just visible now. They stand out and they're accentuated. They're too much. They're over the top. It's not the real not the real experience of talking to them. I, you know, I always feel like our job as retouchers is to present them as they looked when we were standing there talking to them or in front of them or meeting them. And so I think that's a kind of a narrow range of things. Uh, when you go past that, it becomes fantasy retouching. It's when you start 
doing things that go beyond. It doesn't look like this person anymore. It looks like someone else. They're not that thin. They're not that tall. They're not, they don't have that much hair. Their hair color's a different color. All those things are, that's kind of fantasy retouching. If their friends suspect like, huh, you know, you've gone too far. Yeah. My next question would have been pretty much the same, but just asking, why do we even retouch images? And you just touched on this is to make things less apparent that in the natural world wouldn't be as obvious as they are when an image is taken. Right. What's weird about it is you're actually making it look more like real life. When you start making retouching look less like real life, that's when you're going in a bad direction. Yeah. Because if you are right, people look like they really look. When you do it wrong, they, they don't look like themselves. They look like someone else or something they're not. And that's, you know, that's bad. I myself call it alien retouching when people go so <laughs> over the top with the retouching techniques, taking out all the yeah. lines underneath the eyes and yep. everything. And people look like aliens. Oh, yeah. And it's just like horrible <laughs> when it happens. Yeah, it's plastic skin and all that. But I also know people have to start somewhere when they have... They have to learn certain techniques and they, I think it's even part of a process of learning something as overdoing it and then figuring out like, hey, how far can I go and scaling back their approach to a more realistic approach. Yeah, I, I agree. One of the things I, I often tell people at the very beginning is, for example, like wrinkles and lines on the face. I'm like, your job is not to remove them. It's to reduce them. Your job is to make them look five years younger, not 50 years younger. You know, I think a lot of people think, oh, I got to remove their wrinkles. Well, that doesn't look natural. It looks weird. It is an unnatural, like you said, an alien look. It's like, it's not how people really look. Our faces have imperfections. And I can understand someone saying, well, you know, I lit you from the left and that accentuates the shadows in your wrinkles and it makes you look older than you are. You know, so let's either A, move the light directly in front of you to mitigate those, you know, wrinkles. I, I think a lot of people only think of retouching as what happens in Photoshop. But you can do so much with lighting and posing and angles. Let's just look at Instagram for an example, right? Instagram is full of people that have learned how to pose and look great in photos. Uh, everybody that takes an Instagram selfie, where do they hold their camera? Up above their heads, right? That's true. They hold them up in, in, in front of their face, and then they go up about two feet tall, two feet from that. So they're aiming down at each other. Why are they aiming down at themselves? Because it is a photographic position that makes them look better. It's a more flattering position. So there are things that you can do before you ever launch Photoshop to make people look thinner. You can shoot into the short side of their face to make their faces look thinner. If you have someone with a long face, you can make their face look rounder by shooting into the broad side of their face. You can mitigate or you know reduce wrinkles by putting the light directly in front of your subject and up 45 degrees aiming down at them. There's all kinds of things that you can do to make people look awesome and retouch the image before you ever even touch the shutter on the camera. Then you do Photoshop on top of that. So there's, there's a lot of things that I, I don't think that virtually none of that gets discussed. When people talk about retouching and going too far, uh, I, a lot of that is the angle. Look at a concert, for example, right? So at a concert, you have people like Beyonce saying, I, I'm no longer going to let photographers photograph me at my concert. Well, I kind of don't blame her. They're all going to be below stage level yeah. aiming up at her which is going to make her arms and her arms and feet look really big 
It's going to make her body and head look really small. It's just not a very flattering. It's it, it. I mean, if I want to make somebody look big and menacing, I photograph them from down low. I light them from down low. Yeah, for a metal band, that's great, right? Yeah, it's awesome for a metal band. I can understand Beyonce saying, "I don't think so," you know. But you're not going to be able to have photographers hanging from the rafters. Uh, aiming down at a flattering thing like you do with the selfie. So you're going to wind up with less flattering pictures of Beyonce than you would if you were doing a selfie or if Beyonce was doing her own selfie. So there's a whole lot to retouching that doesn't happen in Photoshop. But of course, a lot of it can happen in Photoshop after the fact. But I think retouching is is a whole process. It's It's not just what we do in Photoshop. It's what we do before. It's the clothing that we wear, the angles that we pose people at. There's a hundred poses that you can do that make people's arms look thinner or thicker, their waists look bigger or not. And then there's Photoshop on top of that. Yeah, and that's true. And also from my experience, I hate uh, when you come in to a project as an afterthought and have to fix things that could have been better done outside of Photoshop. Oh, yeah. Let's consider starting messing around with the lighting. You have to not mess with it in one area. You have to globally adjust every little detail to not make it look fake. Oh, yeah. It's an art unto itself. But on the other hand is as people working in Photoshop, I think sometimes we have this sort of responsibility uh, in the commercial world. We are working with models that are basically seen as not necessarily as a product themselves, but they are presenting a product usually, and they are there to make the product look as good as possible. And we as retouchers are hired to serve that purpose of selling. While on the other hand, at least in my case, I often fight as the idea of how far should I take it and when should I say no to a client, which might lead to costing me money and costing a client relationship. It's a really hard topic to even talk about. I know France, they have been trying to come out with a law that requires to have this um, traffic light system of uh, green, yellow and red, how much retouching has been done on an image. And yeah, it's a really difficult topic to even talk about. Yeah, I, I, it is. It's something that you have to have the kind of relationship with a client to where you go, look, this is going into dangerous ground here. We're making her too thin or, you know, no one really cares what color you make the hair where where we get into trouble and retouching is making people basically too thin. I mean, nobody says you're made you're I'm complaining you made somebody look too fat. It always pretty much comes down to you made this subject look too thin and this is a harmful thing to young girls who might be doing that. Do you know what the other side of this is? If you don't want to make people too thin, by the way, I'm not advocating it for at all. You know what my moral code for retouching is, make people look like they were understanding in front of them. What I worry about with this stoplight system is, number one, it's going to be administered. You're your own person saying, I did a little, I did a lot, I did a ton. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you this. If you have the, the models on a boat and you add a shark behind her, Is that red light now? Like who, who determines exactly what is a lot of retouching? I don't see that being applied on any fair way. Number two is if you are now concerned with making models look too thin, are you just going to now hire super thin models? Does that cure the case? Now you're going to hire really, you're going to force models to be even skinnier. I did a shoot last year where a model, a very nice trim model passed out on the set. 
Yeah. And we're like, are you okay? And she's like, well, I knew I had the shoot today, so I didn't eat. We're like, oh my gosh, here, eat, you know, like. Yeah, it's super dangerous. It's so unnecessary, you know. I don't have the answers, and it's very frustrating. And I, and I have a daughter myself. I have a 13-year-old daughter. The last thing I want her to do is to have some unrealistic idea of what she's supposed to look like. And so from a very early age, I've been trying to educate people that when you see a model on the cover of a magazine, not like anybody buys, you know, fashion magazines anymore but but when they did well, some, when you see a magazine do. yeah yeah i know there are still some of course but uh i was trying to educate my daughter on this isn't real life this is like when you went into mommy's closet and you put on her shoes and you're put on her hat and all this stuff it's makeup time it's play time what you're seeing there is it might as well be the incredible hulk with green makeup on that's fantasy that's not what that model looks like she didn't look like that when she walked in the studio. She looked like a regular girl, like you, like, well, not like me, but like <laughs> she looks like you. But when you get there, the first thing they do is they have a stylist that chooses all these outrageous clothes and this outrageous hair. And there are teams of people that work on her. And so what you're seeing on the cover of that magazine is not that girl. It's just like if you see a guy and he's dressed in the Hulk and his shirt's torn, and he's got green skin. He went through the same thing the model did. They just used green makeup. It's all a fantasy. It's designed to be a fantasy. It's not like, oh, here's a snapshot of this young lady we took at the beach. Nope. There's a team of people working on her. It may be six. It may be eight people. Then they light it a particular way. Then they go and Photoshop at the end and remove any little imperfections. The whole thing is manufactured. That's okay. As long as we know that's what it is. But I, I don't think the answer is putting a stoplight on each picture because people will cheat. People will lie. Yeah. You know, companies will lie. It's crazy. I have had the same thoughts. It's like, how can someone determine if an image has been manipulated and in which way? Because what we are doing in high-end retouching and yeah, stuff that goes on the cover of Vogue L and Mahabas Bazaar, if they're done properly, even a professional retoucher hardly can point out their finger on this has been done oh, or yeah. there has been something done. So how could some other entity that is not such a professional determine this? Again, on the other side is like, what are they supposed to do, right? Um, hiring even leaner models or I also get the idea of having a professional model uh, that might have had one or two kids and they then say like, okay, remove the birthmarks and everything from your stomach later on because modeling is more than just being pretty. Of course. They are trained for years to perform in front of the camera for the whole day and they can't just take someone who just happens to have a pretty face. Also doesn't work, right? Yeah, it's a sticky thing, but the last thing we want to do is try to have women become even thinner because you can't yeah. thin them in Photoshop. That I think that's a I think we're going down a slippery slope there. We have enough problems now. I will say this, and, and I think that you would agree, you're a high-end retoucher. I think that in the last five years, we've seen a remarkable improvement in that kind of stuff. You don't usually see these ridiculously thin models anymore. You don't see these ones where people were calling them out in the press. I mean, I think all of the magazines have become much more responsible in their retouching than they were even five years ago. It hasn't completely gone away, but I gotta say, it's dramatically better. The awareness of retouching and the damage that bad retouching can do, I think has really helped our industry in the last few years where you're not seeing as much of that stuff as you used to. Like there was this some, you know, some brands that were 
making models' waists look so impossibly oh, yeah. thin, and and I don't I don't really see that much anymore. I think it's it's certainly gotten dramatically better. Yeah, it has. Also, when I think about skin retouching, we have we have made a lot of progress going from ten years ago having super plasticky skin. I mean, people are asking for natural looking images, but what they mean to say is like, I want them to be polished to the point where images look the best they can, but not have the image look that it was retouched which opens up more doors for, we are always fighting globally over a market of retouching from countries yeah, where people have a higher standard of living and need more money versus countries that yeah have a different worth to their money. And we're always fighting over jobs, but now we are slowly shifting into a direction where quality becomes more important again over quick edits, right? which is also fantastic. No, that is a good thing. I mean, there's, there are a lot of positive things going on in our industry, and I think it's really important. I actually did a, uh, a TEDx talk. So I don't know if you're familiar with the TED conferences or mm -hmm. if they have them in, in, in Germany, but I did a TEDx talk on why we need to retouch. And I explained that it is, it's important. And let me tell you what, if you take a picture of me and you're going to put it on the cover of your magazine, you better retouch it. You better fix some things because uh, I, I would not look on that cover like I do in real life. And I, I think that retouching is necessary. I think if it makes us look bigger than we are, if it makes us look like we have more imperfections or any of that stuff, I think you owe it to the person that you're photographing to make them look as much as like they did when you were standing in front of them. So I think retouching is very important. I think it certainly counteracts a lot of things. Uh, that are necessary. And some of them are photographic. If you shoot somebody with a, a wide angle lens, uh, if they're not dead in the center, they're going to be distorted, you know, and we fix that distortion and we, you know, we, you make people's faces look flattering uh, like they looked when they were there. And, you know, because if you're, if I'm looking at you with my eyes and then I put up a wide angle lens, you don't look the same. You look a little stretched and a little distorted. And, you know, if I shoot you up close with a 50 millimeter lens, it's not going to be a flattering thing. That's why we use longer lenses for portraits. So people look, you know, more flattering. Yeah. For people like us with big noses. And I wasn't going to go all the way there, but OK, I see where this is going. Well, I'm the same. So I wouldn't like that myself. Oh, well, there you go. See, um, no. Yeah, we definitely want to be represented the best we can. Usually, you know, in a picture, I want to look like that clean lifestyle look. You know, I don't want to look like I stayed up all night. I want to look like I had a good night's sleep. Well, it depends on how you wake up. So I, I wouldn't want that because it wouldn't serve my purpose to being photographed like waking up. But anyways, and yeah, we talked about how difficult this industry can be. But what do you think? We made a lot of progress, as you said. Uh, but where do you think this industry might be going in the next five to 10 years? Well, I think we're, we're going to get more more powerful tools. I think that happens all the time. Look at the texturizer slider that we just got in Lightroom oh, and yeah. Camera Raw. That is a, a great tool uh, for people using Lightroom. Uh, it is a far better skin retouching tool than we ever had before. So that's a good thing. It's more natural. It doesn't mess up the highlights as much. There's a lot of good things about the texturizer as far as smoothing skin and also adding texture when you want it to, but you're adding texture without adjusting the midtone contrast, which I think is the difference between it and clarity. Mm -hmm. All that being said, I think we're going to get more tools that make our retouches easier, faster, more realistic. Uh, I look at some of the things that Adobe's doing with uh, AI and machine learning. 
just like the select subject feature yeah that uh, it does some of the grunt work for you uh, i think those things are going to progress at the same time it'll be interesting to see what happens to society's view of retouching does it settle down and they realize that this is something that is good and when it when it's done correctly that it's a good thing for everyone. Are we going to weed out the people that are doing the crazy stuff? And and is there going to be a way to tell a client, like you said, no, I'm not going to do this. It's hard to say that, but certainly you could warn the client and say, I really don't want to take this any farther. I think we're getting into a bad place here. I think there has to be a good way to deal with that. And you know what? If you pull any fast ones anymore with social media, let's just say, hypothetical situation, a client comes to you and says, I want this subject to look crazy thin. Well, they're already thin. No, no, nope. Very, very thin. Like this? Nope. Thinner. Like this? Nope. Thinner. Like this. At some point, the retoucher is either going to walk away or they're going to complete the retouch and then they're going to squeal. They're going to tell somebody. They're going to go on social media and they're going to call the company out and all. I think that the risks for companies to do this unrealistic level of retouching has really become a risk. Uh, and I think because of social media and because nobody in the world can keep a secret about anything, that if you know you do something that you know is wrong, you're going to spill the beans. Your friends are going to spill the beans. Another coworker, someone's going to tell on you. And I think the risks for companies today are higher than they've ever been for doing unrealistic retouching. And I think that's going to continue in the future. I think you're going to see more and more companies realizing it's just not worth it. If I make this model too thin, it's not really going to sell any more of my makeup. It's really not going to sell any more of my clothing line, you know. That stuff, they're going to finally realize that's not what actually sells our stuff. Making great fashion does, not making alien people. So I think you're going to see both of those converge. Our tools are going to get better, allowing us to make more realistic and natural retouches. And at the same time, the sensibilities of the market, I hope, are going to start catching up. And we're going to find that happy place where we realize there is an important role for retouching. But it's just like anything else it's going to need to be responsible retouching. It's okay to have a glass of wine. It's not okay to have 25 glasses of wine. It's so, and, and people don't think, oh man, having wine is bad, but people think getting hammered and just sloshing drunk is. So the enemy is not retouching. It's the overdoing of retouching. Yeah, and how society accepts it or sees it. Yeah. Let's call it like how society demands an outcome. Right. So I think that we're changing what is acceptable and what we're willing to tolerate and where we draw the line. I think that those two things are going to are going to come together uh, and narrow. We're going to we're not going to accept as much retouching as we did five years ago. And maybe five years from now, we're not going to accept as much retouching as we did today. At the same time, the tools will continue to get better and it'll be easier for us to make good retouches, uh, realistic looking retouches. It's all going to move, I think, in the right direction. But, you know, time will tell. Yeah, it will. So I've also just seen glimpses here and there what Adobe is doing. Uh, what I find fascinating is stuff that isn't really implemented in Photoshop just yet or might not even be. But I know they have an um, AI system where they're working with people who use it to detect manipulations on images. So what they already can do is detect uh, when an image has been stretched. So if you have been using a liquify or if you have been using these uh, features to um, enhance a face that can be detected already by AI 
And also what they've been doing is for compositings, they can look at the noise patterns of images and see if they are consistent throughout an image. Yeah, when you drag one image to another, the noise pattern changes and they can detect that already, which is super fascinating to me at least. Right. And, and they've been working on that for years. Uh, they showed that at a Photoshop World keynote. They showed uh, how they could detect a, an area of pixels that have been edited. So think, let's go back to the France thing, because you were talking about France yeah. adding a basically three color stoplight, red. So let's just say that France does it. Let's say France says, okay, that's it, where it's a law. How many people do you think the French government will hire to police every photo that comes out? 5,000? 10,000? 20,000? No. Like maximum five, yeah. Yeah, three. And, and this tool that Adobe's creating, how many people will actually use it and have it and do anything with it? Two. It'll, it'll be what it'll be. I, how I think that tool will be used is two ways in law enforcement as, as a tool to see, you know, did you put a knife in this guy's hand or was the knife really there is number one. Number two is I think it will be used by big gossip sites like in the United States, uh, TMZ or oh National Enquirer or any of these gossip things to look at celebrity photos and, and try to prove the celebrity's image was, do you know how many times I've been called by, by gossip magazines asking me to look at a photo and tell whether it's been manipulated or not? I've been asked, look at this Kim Kardashian picture. Is it real or is it not? I get asked this all the time. I've been asked to do juries, to sit in front of a jury and tell whether a photo I think has been manipulated or not. I, I think that you're not going to have your average person using Photoshop and using this tool to figure out whether their neighbor's shot was, you know, <laughs> I think yeah. it's going to, I think it's going to have very limited use by a very, very limited number of people. And I think the most likely place it'll be used is in um, law enforcement, not in fashion enforcement. Oh yeah. It's a great term, fashion enforcement. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and we're pretty much at the end of my list because it's not getting deeper than having deep conversations about what should be retouched and what shouldn't be retouched. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> it is. I mean, day-to-day -day life of a retoucher is also to like, do I want to do this or do I avoid doing it? But yeah. as long, I think as long as we're not saying, okay, there's the line companies, they don't care. Eventually they just have some marketing team saying, okay, we need this and yeah, as long as they do not get the feedback, we are making little progress on the way to getting nicely retouched, realistic images. Yeah, I I'm agree with you. Yeah, I don't know where we could end this podcast any better. <laughs> We've said all we can say. Yeah, I mean, there's it's not going to get any deeper than this. And again, thanks for taking the time. I mean, it, it was great talking to you and having you shed light upon how you got into all that stuff. And it's super great from someone to share experience that is in the industry and has influenced so many people using Photoshop, which is super great and still down to earth coming on the podcast and sharing all that super great information. Well, it was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay. Good talking with you. Yeah. Have a nice day over there. All right. Cheers. See ya. Bye. Bye-bye. So this was it. Episode number 27 of the Let's Talk Retouching podcast is a wrap. I really hope you enjoyed it and would stick around for the next episode. And I talk to you next time.
just a second. I just forgot to hit record, but yeah, that's on me. Maybe we can um, start over. Whew. Okay, let me get my chair back in place. Okay, and you're gonna hit record and we'll be ready to go. Uh-oh, uh-oh, my dog is telling me she needs to, she needs to go out. Come on, Maki, let's go. Let me just hit record again. <laughs> Don't forget about that. Photoshop World has already been a few weeks ago, right? Well, we have another one coming up. We did one on the east coast of the United States. The next one is in August, so just a few months away in Las Vegas. I'm probably not going to manage to edit the podcast before that, but... Whew. No. 